0: You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit CrossingParagold.com. Okay, today's teaching text is Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Thank you, Gretchen. Let's pray together. So Father, I am assuming that there are some in the room today that even though we sing it as well with my soul, that for some of us that's not really the case, Uh, that we come in here maybe anxious, depressed, frustrated, maybe just got in a fight with a spouse or wrestled with kids or worried about finances as we move into the holiday season, Uh, I just pray that you would, through this text, minister to each heart in a specific way, and that, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do. Um, you know everyone's need here today and we know that your word is active and it's living Um, i pray that it would move in such a way in the hearts of each person that we would be transformed from the inside out that would be good for us good for our families good for our city and ultimately glorifying to your name and it's in your name we do pray amen you may be seated in his incredibly vulnerable book uh the imperfect pastor, Zach Eswine he talks about how he almost lost his soul in the midst of trying to build a successful ministry. And here's what he says. You can see it on the screen. By the time I was 26 and finished in seminary, the purity of my second grade desire to serve God for his own sake was fading, and I knew it. It was becoming quite clear to me that if I was to prove successful in ministry, I needed to do something great. And I needed to define something great in terms of how large, famous, and fast I could accomplish it. Think about those three words for a moment. Large, famous, and fast. In a narcissistic, celebrity-driven, consumeristic culture like ours that is addicted to social media, this is often the version that we are sold on of the good life. That if you want to have the good life, If you want to really be happy, you really want to be fulfilled, you really want to make your life count, then you need to make sure that your life is large, that it's famous, and it's fast, lest you, you, know, you be left behind and overlooked. And therefore, as a result, because this is the air that we breathe in our society, I think there are many of us who struggle with feelings of shame and insecurity, like something is wrong with us. Because when we look at our lives, if we are being honest, most of our lives does not feel large, famous, and fast, but it actually feels very small, hidden, and slow. Whether you're the stay-at-home mom who is constantly cleaning up messes or you're the factory worker who's continually turning wrenches, like whether you are, are young or old, whether you're single or married, the reality is, as most of you know, real life does not always feel big and amazing. In fact, despite what your screen says, despite what you see on YouTube or TikTok or Netflix or wherever it is, real life, for the most part... It's pretty ordinary. It's pretty mundane. And honestly, it actually at times can just feel plain boring. And because Jesus knows that boring can be an enemy, we feel like, to the spiritual life. Because he knows how difficult and discouraging it can be for those of us who want a life that is large and famous and fast. Because he knows that our own spiritual journey, no matter where you are in it, can often feel stagnant and stale or or, or frustrating and fruitless. He gives us this parable, the parable of the mustard seed. And if I can be honest with you, this is one of my favorite parables, but it's also a parable that that I wrestle with in my own life. It's a parable that I really think would be good for you to apply this week, but it's one that I really don't want to apply to my own life, if I can be honest, on most days. But it's a parable, nonetheless, that all of us, I feel like especially as Americans, desperately need to take to heart today. And just to set the context for you, before we get into Matthew 13, in Matthew chapter four, you may remember this, Jesus walks on the scene and he kind of preaches his first sermon. And in one sentence, he sums up what his ministry is all about. And here's what it is. You ready? Here's kind of the summary of Jesus's ministry. He says, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Now that phrase, the kingdom of God has come near, might not mean a whole lot to you, But to those who were living in the first century to hear the kingdom of God has come near would set off all kinds of bells and whistles in your head. Because if you grew up as a first century Jew, you would have grown up most likely sitting on your grandpa's lap, hearing him tell you stories about the kingdom of God. You would have gone to the temple and you would have sung songs about the kingdom of God. You would have listened to, to, to teachings on the kingdom of God. Teachings like this from Isaiah 35 where the prophet Isaiah says, When the kingdom of God comes, quote, everlasting joy will crown your heads. Gladness and joy will overtake you and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Like this is what you're waiting on for the day when the life will be again, like it was in the garden of Eden before sin, where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man overlap because when that day arrives, there will be no more war. There'll be no more betrayal. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more addiction. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more infidelity and cheating and, and, and all of these kind of things, death that we have come to hate. Sorrow and sighing the prophet says, will flee away and joy will overtake you. This is the promise that the Israelites are clinging to. And keep in mind, in Matthew 13, the Israelites are living in a militarized zone that is occupied by the Roman Empire. Like, you can't forget that. And so these are people who are being taxed beyond what they are actually able to pay. They are living in a world that is filled with suffering and pain and injustice, a world of loss and failed expectations and and, and doubt and all kinds of deep, deep sorrow. And, And so they are people eagerly waiting for God's kingdom to come. And therefore, whenever Jesus walks on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is near." They would have looked at that and said, finally, finally, what we have been longing for this Jesus, he's the Messiah and he is going to crush the Roman empire. Just as we see God do with, with, with Egypt, where he wipes them out with the Red Sea. That is what Jesus is going to do. He is this Messiah who is going to come and crush the Roman Empire. He's going to free us from oppression. He's going to bring us to the top of the food chain. And we will finally and fully experience the life that we have been longing for. That's what was going on in their minds. But that's not at all what happens. John MacArthur says it like this. As for them talking about the first century Jew, <clears throat> excuse me. The kingdom had very clear definitions. It would come in glory and power. There would be pomp and circumstance. There would be a great cataclysmic events. There would be the punishment of evil doers. They were looking for the music, the horses, the triumph, the wonder, the glory, the show, the publicity. They really expected A blazing display of power and glory and majesty and might as their Messiah established his kingdom. But it did not happen that way. Rather than the Messiah coming in a blaze of glory, he came as a baby. And so rather than his arrival being large and famous and fast, it was small and it was hidden and slow. Think about this. God could have, if he chosen to, saved us in a second. He could have saved us in a second. But instead, he sends a child, a child that would end up spending the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. And because that is true, by the time we come to Matthew 13, Jesus has become quite the disappointment. He's not really what they expected the Messiah to be. And maybe for some of you, if you can be honest this morning, you can relate. When you signed up to follow Jesus, you expected really big things. You expected that when you gave your life to Jesus, that maybe you'd be healthier or wealthier or more prosperous. Maybe you thought that, that your life would quickly move up into the right. And yet here you are now sometime later, and your spiritual journey has at times felt like, one step forward and two steps back. It has been anything but large, famous, and fast. Some of you in the room today, you are wrestling with the same sins that you were wrestling with 10 years ago. Think about that. Others, your relationship was not restored. You didn't get the healing. You didn't see the salvation. Some of you, you watch the news and you look around and you're like, it looks like to me the world is not getting any better. It's actually getting far worse. And therefore, because of that, just like those in Matthew 13, some of you maybe are sitting here right now and you're wondering what happened. I mean, if Jesus is who he says he is, if the kingdom of God is a place where sorrow and sighing flee away and joy will overtake me, then why is there still so much brokenness? Why is there still so much brokenness, not just out there, but also brokenness in here? And you see, because Jesus is a really good teacher, he anticipates this question and he gives us the answer. In Matthew 13, verse 31, if you look back with me, and these two short and yet incredibly powerful verses, it says, Jesus told a parable and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, think about this, he could have said anything he wanted next kind of anticlimactic what he says the kingdom of heaven is like dot 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 a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field though it is the smallest of all seeds yet when it grows it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches notice that according to jesus when it comes to the kingdom of god rather than god choosing to start big he starts small Rather than choosing to go fast, he chooses in his sovereignty to go slow. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, a seed that when buried, get that image in your mind, a seed that when put underground in the dark soil, when it dies, if you know anything about seeds, they have to die and break open. When it dies and when it break opens, it produces this shoot that eventually over time will become the largest of all plants. And its life will be a blessing to the life of others. That's the image of the birds coming and nesting in it. As I thought about this large tree in Jesus' parable, I thought about a large tree that's on the street that we live on. I I don't know if this is an oak or a maple. Maybe you will know. I'm not really sure, to be honest. But um, it's a really big tree. See the house next to it? It's a big house that it's set next to, but it actually the house looks small compared to this tree. And I was thinking as I walked by this tree earlier this week about this parable and the reality that though this tree is now big and large and majestic, it started as this tiny little seed. A seed that at one point was almost invisible to the naked eye. Like You wouldn't even have noticed it if you would have walked past it. And yet Jesus says, think about this image here, that's what the kingdom is like. It starts small. And listen, guys, in our culture small always feels so insignificant, does it not? It does to me. It's like the smaller something is, the more irrelevant it is, the more trivial it is, the more inconsequential it is, and yet according to Jesus, in all of God's bigness, this is how he loves to work. Through small, weak, seemingly insignificant things that over time will surprise you by how big they become. And this is just what we see throughout church history. I mean, think about how we got here. I mean, Christianity started with a handful of really fearful, slow-witted, sinful men and women who, when they received the Spirit of God, were empowered, and they went forward the best they could with the message that Jesus had actually gotten up out of the grave. And as a result of these handful of people empowered by the Spirit of God, Christianity is now 2.5 billion people strong. And how did it get here to America? I mean, I mean, well, if you go way back, I mean, you have the Apostle Paul who eventually set foot into Europe, one man who, by the way, used to be a murderer. One dude steps into Europe. He begins to preach the gospel there. And as a result of that, the, the gospel eventually begins to spread all throughout the known world. And how did, it, how did it get to us? I was thinking about this this past week. I like to go and, and actually study the pilgrims uh, every time around Thanksgiving. It's just, it, it encouraged me. There's so much about their story that is so inspiring. But, but what happens? Right? You, you have this small group of people who boarded a boat called the Mayflower. Just making sure you're all awake. And despite their chances of survival being incredibly low, despite the fact that that they were going into a world where they didn't speak the language of the native people there, they didn't really understand the culture, they had to cross this freezing cold Atlantic Ocean, they moved to America in search for a place where they can practice the way of Jesus in freedom. And as a result, through this small, weak, fragile group of Christians, despite a ton of hardship and disease and death, life began to burst forth. Other colonies would eventually be formed and these colonies along with the gospel would spread as America eventually became a nation. But again, remember, we look at this now and it's huge, but it did not start that way. It started small. I think not just about the history of our country, but the history of our church and how our church got started. We talk about this regularly. It's important, I think, as a part of our family history. But remember, we did not start big. We didn't have any money. Uh, we didn't have the backing from some large mega church. We started in a living room with just eight people who were crazy enough to believe this vision that we could see God's kingdom come and will be done as we were not trying to drop bombs on the city, but by being boots on the ground, by getting in the trenches and actually seeking to make disciples who make disciples in the everyday, ordinary, oftentimes unglamorous, hidden stuff of life. And from that, right, you started with eight people in one missional community. And we have now moved to, I don't know what it is, 350 people in 17 different missional communities. And we literally, as a church, have had an impact all over the world. That is not an, an exaggeration. Literally all over the world. And guys, this is the mustard seed principle. It is not large, famous, and fast. It is small, oftentimes hidden, and slow. But from these humble beginnings, big things emerge. And this is what we see. I was thinking about the passage in Ezekiel uh, chapter 17. I know you guys all have Ezekiel memorized, um, but you might want to turn there and look anyway. Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22 through 24. Here's what we read. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Ezekiel 17, 22. No shame, by the way, in using your table of contents if you need to. It's on page 845 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. Um, Verse 22, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. I will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. See where Jesus might be getting some of his language from? Birds of every kind, what will, will nest in it? They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, will bring down the tall tree and make, low tree, make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and I make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will do it. Now, I don't have time to to do too much exegesis of this passage, but basically, what I know, just because I'm able to read commentaries, is Ezekiel here is talking about Zedekiah, this corrupt and cowardly king who represents this tall cedar. And then this little shoot is his nephew, Jehoiakim, who at the time was exiled in Babylon. He was a nobody, but what God is prophesying through Ezekiel is that one day he's going to take a little shoot, Jehoiakim, from the top, this little bitty shoot you barely even can see at the very top, and he is going to plant that. he is going to grow that. And as a result, he is going to accomplish great things through the people of Israel. And you hear that, okay, that's a good history lesson, but what in the world does that have to do with me? Well, here's the point. Here's the implication, I think, for us in 2022. If we are going to be the people God has created us to be, we have to stop paying so much attention to the people and the things that the world is impressed with. Everyone is gawking at this impressive tree. But God is wanting to do a mighty work through the little shoot. We want large, famous, and fast, but so often God wants to do things that start out small, hidden, and slow. And on the one hand, this is really comforting. But on the other hand, for me at least, it's really convicting. Because I am the kind of guy who naturally wants to be large famous and fast i mean come on like every pastor has to have a little bit of that in them or they wouldn't say like i'm going to choose a career where i stand on a stage every sunday and people will just come and listen to me talk right it's like and and i begin to think you know this past week about even the early days and and our ministry as a church. And I've always wanted to attract the people that Jesus attracts, which means like I want us to attract the last, the least, and loss of society. I think if we are a church that looks like Jesus, those are the people that we're increasingly attracting. We're probably attracting who Jesus attracts and we're repelling who Jesus repels, which is typically like the religious kind of legalistic type. Um, so I do want to, to get the last, least, and loss of society. Like I, I really do. But if I can be honest, I also want to attract winners, because if we're going to be a successful church, we need winners. There's been times in my life where I've just, I've believed that. Like, oh man, God, like, just please, you know, just, just some, some prestigious people, Lord. Like, that would really help your church, God. That would bring you a lot of glory. You know, and i I'll remember, I was telling this in the early service, I remember, you know, whenever Murray Watts walked into our service for the first time when we were at the cinema, Murray Watts just played professional baseball. And I reminded the early service, I actually beat Murray Watts in a home run derby one time. True story. I'm not taking credit for it. It's glory to God, but it actually happened. It's not a big deal, but it just happened. I'm just saying. And Murray Watts, what is he? Six, five, six, six, Kansas City Royals. Pretty good looking dude. Um, not as much hair as I have, a good looking guy. And, and, and he's, you know, dressed nice and, and he's got a good personality. And I remember thinking, man, that's, that's who we need. That's what's going to take us to the next level. Uh, little did I know that actually Murray would, would quit playing baseball about three months later and then move to Utah not long after that, you know. But, but I look at that moment and I just realize, man, there are just so many times in my life, even a day, where, where I do not want to be a mustard seed. I just don't. Uh, rather than experiencing a life that is small, hidden, and slow, I want a life that is large, famous, and fast because that's what gets attention in our country, right? Um, and God is just so good. It's like uh, he knows my heart. Uh, and I, I'm so glad God doesn't reveal all of our sinfulness to us all at one time. Like, wouldn't that be so discouraging? Like, God's such a good God. He just reveals to us, like, what we can handle at the time. And and uh, I, I just feel like God is just so good at times in my life to reveal to me how this stuff's cropping up in me. Um and he can do it, and, and, and just all these little little weird and, and unique ways. Like I was working on this sermon earlier this week, and and uh, little backstory for you. I'm uh, what is that the NEA the NEA Hospital Christmas Tree Lighting. I don't know what they call it, but they have this big tree in front of North uh, NEA Hospital. And tonight, I've been asked to read the Nativity story before they light the tree. Right? It's going to be epic. Our missional community is going to be there. Um, you're welcome to come to that five o'clock. By the way, but um, <laughs> I'm I'm sitting there though, with that backstory in mind, and I'm working on this sermon, and all of a sudden I get this text from Ryan Vaughn, and you can't really see that, but it says, Pastor Jerry Pickney from The Crossing will be reading the Nativity story. And you see, uh, Ryan put on their exclamation point, Jerry exclamation point. And, uh, and it was funny. I mean, I, I laughed whenever I read it. I was like, "Man, they're going to expect some fifty-nine-year-old pastor to walk up with a name like Jerry." You know, it's like I'm thirty-nine, not fifty-nine, but whatever. I um, know offense. For your name is Jerry. Jerry's a great name, but it seems like an older name to me. And so, uh, it may be new. If you, maybe your kids named Jerry. It's a classic name. Name your kid Jerry. Um, all of a sudden, you get real nervous. And so, um, and, it, and it was funny. But in that moment, there's probably just a little bit in me It's like, they got to get that right. And and I felt like there was a little bit of a test from from God in that moment. Here's the question that I heard him ask me, and I think it's a question he's not just asking me, but he's asking you, and it's this question. Do you have the stamina for going unnoticed? Do you have the stamina for going unnoticed? We so want to be seen. We want the pat on the back. If I'll serve in kids ministry, but they better let me know how happy they are that I'm serving over there. Somebody better let the world know what I have been doing. Do you have the stamina for going unnoticed? Are you okay with the small, the hidden, the slow? I am convinced that the people who are going to get the greatest rewards in heaven are not going to be the guys like me who stand under the lights on a stage. It's going to be somebody who is willing to be planted in the dark like a seed. I think what God wants to say to you and me, and especially this generation, is listen, guys, stop trying to be so impressive in the eyes of the world. Just stop. Stop believing the lie that success means large, famous, and fast. And start believing a mustard seed seed spirituality. If we will do this, if we will embrace the mustard seed spirituality, we will experience in full the power of God's kingdom. I think back to that tree, and if you get close to that tree that's on uh, on our street, you will notice that all of the concrete around it has been busted up. There's a picture of it right there. Um, the roots from the tree are just, I mean, ripping that concrete apart. And as I, I saw that this week, I thought, that's the power of a seed. That is the power of gradual, relentless growth. And so, listen to me. If you're listening to this and you feel small, you feel insignificant, you feel like a not good enough, you feel like you ever asked the question, like, how could How could little old me ever accomplish anything great in the kingdom? How could God ever do anything great in me and through me? If those are the kind of questions you are asking, then listen, you're actually in a very good place. Because according to the Apostle Paul, God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise, and he chooses the weak to shame the strong. And so to the stay-at-home mom who is discouraged, to the employee who didn't get the promotion, to the student, to the teenager who didn't make the team or didn't get the invite or was left out, to the ordinary disciple who, despite working really, really hard, feels like you still have a long ways to go. Here's my message to you this morning. Don't grow weary in doing good. There are a lot of people in our culture right now that I feel like when it comes to the Christian faith are tapping out. They're just giving up. And, and and I think honestly, like maybe there are some of you right now, like that's where you are. And I just want to say to you, like, 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 like you may be really close to busting through the concrete. Like you may, be, like your breakthrough could be close. And so don't give up. I was talking with uh, Gage, one of our, our teenagers, this week in the hallway. We were talking about how especially this younger generation, like the YouTube generation, like we just want everything now. We want it to be big. We want it to be fast. We want it to be famous. And we're not willing to put in the work to, 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 to get to see the big stuff. And even if we do put in the work, we get discouraged Does it happen as quickly as we happen. And he's like, and then as a result, people just give up. And I was like, Gage, that ain't just true of teenagers, man. Like, that's true of adults, too. Like, that's true of all of us. And not just like, I mean, pretty in all areas of life, including our spirituality. And so like, maybe some of you, like, you're tempted right now. Like, I'm not seeing the results. I'm not seeing the results in my marriage. I'm not seeing the results in my kids. I'm not seeing the results in my job. I'm not seeing the results in my, in my own personal walk with God. And if that's where you are, listen, don't give up. Keep taking the risk keep stepping out in faith, keep reading scripture. What if it doesn't feel like anything has happened, especially when it feels like nothing's happening? Keep praying, keep showing up to your missional community meal, keep serving, keep giving what you can, when you can, keep loving, keep forgiving, keep sowing the seeds, and leave the rest to the providence of God. The one who promises that even our smallest acts of obedience over time will have a massive impact in the kingdom. This is the mustard seed principle that has guided God's people down throughout church history. My prayer is that it will guide you and me as well. To end, I just want to read one verse from Zechariah 4.10 and set the context. The people of Israel have just finished building the second temple and the young people are real excited. They're like, this is great. We now have this new temple. But the old people are like, this actually is pretty lame. This new temple isn't as big as the old temple. It's kind of a stump compared to the old temple. And to them, small was a sign of God's displeasure. If God is in something, surely it's got to be big. It's got to be massive. To which God responds to them in Zechariah 4.10 by saying, Don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. If there is ever a verse that you needed to memorize and our culture needed to memorize, it's don't despise the day of small things. We want large, we want famous, we want fast. And Jesus says to us today, God says to us today, do not measure success the way the world measures success. Do not believe the lie that bigger is always better. And so what does this mean for us as a church? Well, I think it means we continue to pray for big stuff. We pray for revival. We have the big prayer meetings, all that kind of stuff, but we don't neglect praying in the closet, so to speak. We ask God to do big things in and through our kids and our marriage, but we also do the dishes and continue to date our spouse and make breakfast for the kids yeah, sure, like we can, we can get together. I love to dream, right? I got a lot of dreams and there's nothing wrong with that. Dream big. And dream big about how God wants to see his kingdom come and his will being done, but also don't neglect your neighbor next door. I think something that God's been saying to me the last few weeks is keep preaching to the crowds, but don't neglect the wounded man or woman on Monday. Preach on Sunday, don't neglect the least of these on Monday, why? Because all big things start small. This is the way it works in the kingdom of God. And you know what the best part about all this is? The growth that God wants to bring about ultimately is not dependent upon you or on me like it, it's not like like the man plants the seed, but God brings the growth. And that passage in Zechariah where he says, don't despise the day of small things, right before that, there's a verse that says, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord, these things will be brought about. So you know what that means for you and me today? The pressure is off. This isn't a message that is about to try harder to be better. It is just be faithful in the small, hidden, seemingly insignificant stuff. You cannot control the fruitfulness but you can control the faithfulness. Be faithful to God even when no one is looking. Keep showing up. Keep doing the work that God is calling you to do, no matter how small and hidden and messy and slow it might be. And trust that as you do, that God through that work and the power of his spirit is going to bring about something that is bigger and better than we could ever imagine.